0: Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your steadfast love. With your word this morning, fill our hearts with your promise, with a hope made secure by you and you alone. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The word Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. It is the focus, and I'm going to just see, I've got, I'm missing a slide. That's why. So, for those who are filling in the blanks, the word Advent means coming or arrival. The entire Advent season is one of preparation. We prepare to recall. The first advent, which is Jesus and his birth. That's the first advent. But advent is also preparing for his second coming, his second advent, his second arrival. So it is really about preparing us for the promise made sure for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. This is what advent is really all about. Now, as we travel through Advent, we are going to be using Luke's gospel, and we are going to be guided with four themes. The first is hope, then preparation, rejoice, and assurance. Today is all about hope. Let's face it. Hope is a precious an unseen commodity in our world today, isn't it? The past few years, it seems our world has been without hope. There is fear, there is despair, there is resignation, there is even anger. But there is very little hope in this world. And yet as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a hope that is secure before us, no matter the circumstances, no matter how dark it is, no matter through the valleys of shadow of death, there is a hope for us that is secure. And we must never lose sight of that hope. We must never lose sight of that hope, even when life seems barren, even when there seems to be a silence from God. You see, with the Israelites... God had been silent for 400 years. The last prophet who spoke was Malachi. That was 400 years before the birth of Jesus. For 400 years, there was no word of God. There was silence. There weren't even any miracles. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could go back 100 years to Daniel and that time... There was an angelic vision at that time. There were some miracles. But really, if you wanted powerful miracles for the whole nation of Israel, you had to go back even 300 more years to the time of Elijah and Elisha. This is what Malachi was talking about. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He was referring to, to Elijah from 400 years ago, and that prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled till 400 years later. 800 years. It's a long time to wait, isn't it? The long time, 400 years of silence. In our day and age, we get what I don't know, what commercials are like eight seconds long because we won't go any longer than eight seconds now? So a lot of people don't have that hope because they don't look to God and to his word. You see, the story of Luke is not one of despair. It is one full of hope because in the midst of silence, in the midst of spiritual drought, and there was a spiritual drought and a spiritual barrenness in the nation of Israel. In the midst of that, God brings life where there is no life. And he brings hope, where there is no hope, at least as the world sees it. So this morning, you know, as I was preparing this, I thought this is probably the perfect message for us right now. One of hope. Preparing our hearts to receive Jesus, our King. So we're going to learn from Luke throughout this season of Advent. And this morning, if you want the lesson in one sentence, it is this. In our barrenness, God brings new life and takes away our reproach. So let's learn from Luke. Let's learn from God and His Word. We begin. It says this, Luke chapter, five, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. Now, Luke is writing to a fellow named Theophilus. We don't know exactly who he is, probably a high-ranking non-Christian or maybe by this time Christian official. But Luke writes about some ordinary things as well. And he gives a lot of historical detail because he wants Theophilus to be certain of his faith, to be certain of his hope. So he gives a lot of detail that to us nowadays, we kind of go, eh, you know, historical stuff, history. But you have to understand, because of all the history in there, we can go back and we can trace all of these things. That they actually took place in a certain time with real people. And thus we too can be certain of our hope. So let's take a look at some of the ordinary things that Luke writes about. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. All right, and he had a, a wife. Her name was Elizabeth. She was from the uh, daughters of Aaron. So th- these are pretty ordinary people. Zechariah was a priest, but he was a country pe- priest. He would have been of maybe one of estimated 8,000 priests throughout the area, throughout the land. And. Because of how things turned out, they would rotate through during their time in the temple. And for him to be called to the temple, that was not an ordinary thing. But there are some things that might pass us by unless you start to look at the details here. And in the details, you start to see the hand of God. Zechariah, his name means the Lord has remembered. If you were here last week, we talked about remembering that it's not just something from the past, but bringing the past promises into the future for effect. So the Lord has remembered. He has taken what was promised in the past and brought it into the future, the present actually, for effect. So then you have to start to say, well, what are some of those promises? What are some other things that we can find out? Well, you find out that he was a priest from the tribe of Levi, and that would have actually gone back to Aaron, who was the first high priest. And also Elizabeth was also from the uh, the lineage of Aaron, so she would have also been from the tribe of Levi, Levi, the priestly tribe. So there's something special going on here, a little out of the ordinary. And so you start to look at that and you think, ah, there's the hand of God working here. Well, what else do we know about Elizabeth and Zechariah? Well, it says they were godly people. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, we can't take this to mean that they were sinless because, as Paul said, everyone has sinned. Fall short of the glory of God, but they were observant in their faith. They were dedicated to following the word of the Lord. And even though they were dedicated in following the word of the Lord, it says this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now I'm going to guess that you or someone you might know has had uh, difficulty conceiving, and might even be barren. And that's hard, isn't it? It's really hard, and uh, especially nowadays, all the treatments that you can get—I mean, it's just—it's overwhelming. And a lot of people don't want to talk about it, right? Because there's—even though everybody says. It's not your fault. It kind of feels like our fault, maybe. There's that sense there. Now, I want you to take that, and I want you to double that sense for Elizabeth. Because during that time, for Hebrew women in that culture, to be barren was a disgrace. It really was a reproach. And there was even a sense of moral, uh, a moral judgment against that woman because they would say, well, God has made a moral judgment and you must be unrighteous. So you get the sense of that, right? This is a big, big deal. And so, if you take a look, even in the Old Testament, do you remember Abraham and Sarah? Even though God had promised children... Sarah was still barren for quite a few years. And then it was Hagar, the servant. She became pregnant, and then she looked down her nose upon Sarah. Also, if you go back, there's Leah. Leah referred to her barrenness as misery. Hannah wept bitterly. And from our reading today, Rachel, who was barren when she bore a son, she said, God has taken away my reproach. So you have to understand, this is just not barrenness. There's a sense of shame and despair there. They were childless. We can learn a lot just from Zachariah and Elizabeth. There's quite a bit here. You can learn that you can live a light righteous life and there can still be silence and barrenness in your life. And I'm not just talking about childlessness. There's a certain type of barrenness that sometimes people have. And you see, in our day and age, we think, okay, if I come to church, if I follow the rules, if I give an offering, if I say my prayers, life should be good, Right? That is the sense that we have as American Christians. And when when that doesn't happen, we think that somehow God is punishing us for that. But you have to remember, we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, there is sin. So if you take a look at your circumstances and say, my circumstances aren't what I think they should be, Your faith can get shaky because then you're placing your hope in the circumstances. And you should see barrenness should not be considered a punishment from God. We do live in a fallen world. And sin is everywhere. And because of sin, there are effects everywhere. In every part of our lives. Sometimes God does discipline. Sometimes It's just the result of living in the world in which we live. And it's really easy when things don't go well to want to blame God, isn't it? I mean, it just is. But here's the thing. God often chooses to show his glory when we think he has forgotten about us, when we think he has forgotten about us completely. God chooses To show his glory. You know. I bet each and every one of you. Has had an experience. Where you went through a really rough time. And maybe. Months weeks. Years later. You look back and go. Oh yeah. I see now. I see the lesson in that. You see how God was actually gracious. And merciful. During this time. And you give glory to him. See, you know, we say God is good all the time and all the time God is good. There's much theology in that little phrase. In the hard times, God is good. In the wonderful times, God is good. He is good all the time. Amen. And so we, sh- so we look to his glory apart from our circumstances apart from a spiritual drought, apart from barrenness in our life. Because God and his word and his promises brings life. I'm going to read verse 8 through 17. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow, right? So Zechariah, he's in there. He's offering incense unto the Lord. Something that every priest would do had they had that duty. But I, I just want, there's so much in there. I just want you to zero in on this. Listen to what Gabriel told Zachariah. Do not be afraid. And then he says, your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call him John. See, you must know this, that God hears your prayers. Gabriel, hold him. Your prayer has been heard. And the prayer was answered in a twofold manner. One, that they actually would have a child, a son. But there was another prayer. I'm sure they had prayed as well that there would be redemption for the nation of Israel. Now, they didn't realize that they were getting a two-for-one deal in that prayer, did they? You know, can you can you imagine them later on, after listening to John, their son John the Baptist, preach? I think, wow, oh, we prayed for a son. We prayed for the redemption of Israel too. Oh, now I get it. Right. So a prayer was answered in a much more full, fuller, fuller manner, fuller manner, much more full manner than they could ever imagine. And you see, when God answers prayers, there is the promise of life. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. But what kind of son would he be? It says, and he will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He would come in the spirit of Elijah. Now remember, how many years before was Elijah prophesied? Malachi said it was 400 years at Malachi, but Elijah was 800 years ago. So Jesus even affirmed Malachi's prophecy. What Gabriel said, because he told the people that John the Baptist is Elijah, if you would accept him as such. Now, was he the literal Elijah? No. Elijah wasn't raised from the dead in the spirit of John the Baptist, but John the Baptist had the spirit and power of Elijah. So what does that mean? Well, you have to remember, during the time of Elijah, Israel was in a very, very difficult time. At the beginning of Elijah's ministry, there was a three-year drought. How's that? Prophet of the Lord, three-year drought. Everything shriveled and died. And you know, you got to know this. There was a lot of idolatry in those days, in the days of Elijah. An Israelite king gave his son Ahab to marry. Jezebel. You remember Jezebel? You've heard the name Jezebel. For those growing up, you've heard it as an insult, maybe. You Jezebel. This was, she is the epitome of an adulterous woman. One who worshiped pagan gods. One who brought pagan worship into the nation of Israel. And so reviled is she that she's actually mentioned in the book of revelation about someone and a church that has become so debased in its thinking, in its unfaithfulness. So all of this is going around, happening in the time of Elijah. And he brings the nation back to the Lord with prophetic utterances and miracles. You see, to be in the spirit of Elijah is to utter prophecy or literally a word from God so that the nation and its leaders would repent and be prepared for Jesus. See, what, would, what did John the Baptist do? Well, he was prophesied that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sounds nice and sweet, doesn't it? Oh, your son John, he's going to prepare people for the Lord who's coming. Was he a nice, sweet, gentle guy? No, he wasn't, was he? He was loving. He loved God. Among all people, he loved God. But he said this. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If John the Baptist were to preach in almost any church in America right now, he would be thrown out. What does it mean to come in the power and spirit of Elijah? Repentance. To preach repentance. To turn away from sin. To reject anything that leads you away from the one true God. This is the spirit and power of Elijah. This is the spirit and power of John. And now the Holy Spirit comes and brings us to repentance. Repentance first for faith in Christ Jesus. Repentance of sin, of anything that keeps us apart from him. See, when there's repentance, there's forgiveness. And when there's forgiveness, there's new life repentance of sin and confessing Jesus as Lord leads to new life, period. So if you were there, if you were Zechariah, angels talking to you, Gabriel's right there, how would you respond? I mean, Zechariah said this. He said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I mean, he's, he, he's basically, basically saying, really? Really? I mean, he looked not to the angel. He did not look to Gabriel. He did not look to the word of God. He looked to his circumstances. And because he looked to his circumstances, there was disbelief. Rather than listening and believing in the promises of God, he chose to look at his own circumstances. to said, this, this can't be possible. I'm going to guess you and I are much more like Zachariah than we would ever like to admit. What does it mean to know and to hold on to the word of God no matter the circumstances in your life? no matter how difficult it is. Because I guarantee you, if you look to your circumstances for hope, you have no hope. Period. Where do you find your hope? In God alone and his word alone. Listen to what Gabriel said. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and, was, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. He was standing before Gabriel and the messenger of God pronounced good news to us. Every time we come here together, every time we gather together, you are in the presence of God and his word is declared to you and it is good news. And we must cling to his word and his word alone That's where the good news comes from. That's where the promises is. That's where we find our hope in him and him alone. And in his word, we find that he removes our reproach. It says this, verse 20 through 25, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, there's an irony here. I don't know if you caught it. For 400 years, the Lord had been silent. Then the Lord spoke and Zechariah had to be silent. You know, There's, there's a bit of an irony there. There's a... It was actually a gentle rebuke for Zechariah. But for me, the sweetest words out of all those verses I read is this. He has looked upon me and has taken away my reproach from among the people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ Jesus, our reproach has been taken away the guilt, the shame. Everything that we've done has been forgiven. Everything has been forgiven. And through Christ Jesus for his dying death and resurrection, we have an eternal hope that is secured for us. This is Advent. This is what we hold forth. It is secure. And we have to cling to that no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on. You see, in spite of our rebellion and sin against Him, God has looked upon each one of us. God has looked upon you and me, all of us. And through faith in His Son, Jesus, has taken away our reproach. And that is the good news that we always must carry in our heart because in him and him alone are we saved. So this Advent season here, no matter the circumstances, no matter the barrenness, and that can be spiritual barrenness, or even the silence that seems to be coming from God, you are not without hope. Read his word. You want to hear God speak? Read his word out loud. God will speak. Just read his word. Take in his promises. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, who is your, who is our eternal hope. Amen? Amen. Amen.